Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Andrew and Addie and all of our musicians. We appreciate you all so much today leading us in worship. This is a great time of praise and worship to God today. And we pray that the Lord will enrich our fellowship today with his presence. And uh, we look forward to opening God's word together as well this morning as we continue our worship. If you're visiting uh, with us here this morning, we're glad you're here. Uh, Thank you for coming and spending this Lord's Day here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, We pray that your time here will be a great blessing in your life. And the Lord will use this in your life to edify you and build you up. Um, If you are visiting with us, we're continuing this morning in our study of the book of 2 Peter. So if you want to take your Bible and open to 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, we're in a study that we've titled Know and Grow. As we begin this morning, I wanted to share a story I read this last week that really ministered to me. Um, A man named uh, Dr. Congdon uh, once approached the great Bible teacher R.A. Torrey. His name was Reuben Archer Torrey, great Bible teacher. And he complained that he wasn't getting anything out of his Bible study. And he said, please tell me how to study my Bible so that it will mean something to me. And R.A. Torrey replied to him, he said, read it. And he said, well, I do read it. And then Tori said, well, read it some more. And the guy said, well, how? And Tori said, take some book and read it 12 times a day for a month. And he said, Tori recommended the book of 2 Peter to this man, Dr. Congdon. And Dr. Congdon later said this about that experience. My wife and I read 2 Peter three or four times a day in the morning, two or three times at noon, and two or three times at dinner. Soon I was talking 2 Peter to everyone I met. It seemed as though the stars in the heaven were singing the the story of 2 Peter. I read 2 Peter on my knees, marking passages. Teardrops mingled with the ink that I'd underlined passages with. And I said to my wife, see how I've ruined this part of my Bible? And she said, yes, but as the pages have been getting black, your life has been getting white. That's good. And I pray that's what's happening to us as we're reading together and studying 2 Peter. That as the pages of our Bible here may be getting black with underlining or maybe just our our fingerprints upon them, that our lives are getting white as God uses his word to to transform our lives. And that's what our goal is really uh, for this study. It's for God to be at work transforming us more into the image of his son. Now, as we continue our study in this book this morning, I want to just remind us of the context Uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 1 to 11, is one long sentence. It's one long sentence really about spiritual growth. And the first four verses really lay out for us the riches that God has given us to be growing spiritually. It tells us that God's given us everything that we need to live a godly life. In the beginning in verses 5 to 7, we come to our responsibility. We have the responsibility to appropriate those riches God has given to us And as it says in verse 5, to be adding to our faith, diligently laboring to add to our faith these other seven Christian virtues that are listed there. And then when we come to verses 8 to 11, which is our primary text for this morning, then we get the results of doing that. So we have God's riches he's given us, then our responsibility to appropriate those riches and be growing. And then verses 8 to 11 tell us what we can expect if we're a growing Christian. Now, I know I have in your outline there this morning verses 8 to 15. We're going to focus on verses 8 to 11, and I'll just briefly kind of allude to verses 12 to 15, and we'll, we'll pick up there next time. Let me read uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours... 
and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the, name, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. May the Lord write um, his eternal word on our hearts here uh, this morning. You know, there's a lot of ways to motivate people to do something. And all of us who have kids and grandkids, we're familiar with how to get people to do things, right? How to provide some kind of motivation. Uh, one, one common motivator is a negative consequence. Um, there's a, a, church, a, a story I read about a church bulletin down in Florida. They were going to have a, a, a movie night on Saturday night at 5 o'clock. And this church was notorious for the parents kind of letting their kids run all over the place. So the church bulletin at that morning, it said, movie today, Sunday at 5 o'clock in the church fellowship hall. Free puppies will be given to all children not accompanied by parents. Now, that's probably a pretty good motivator, I would think. It would be for me anyway. I don't know about the rest of you. Uh, another motivator is fear or some kind of a threat uh, that we might give. Um, one in this light that I like is this man receives a sternly worded second notice from the IRS. And he goes down to the local IRS office to pay his bill and apologizes that he'd overlooked the first notice. And the IRS agent said, don't worry about it. He says, we no longer send out first notices. We realize the second notices are much more effective. <laughs> now, that's motivation, right? There are a lot of ways to motivate, a lot of methods to motivate people to do things. But probably the best motivator is some personal benefit, some positive result that we'll receive from taking some specific action. And that's what our text this morning really is about. It's about the benefits that you and I will gain if we're growing in godliness, if we're growing in this chain of virtues that are listed in verses 5 through 7. So Peter is motivating his readers to be growing spiritually. And he tells us what's going to happen in our lives if we're cultivating these character traits in verses 5 through 7. And so I've titled this message this morning, Full Benefits, because these are the benefits that you and I receive if we have a robust, thriving spiritual life. So Peter wants to motivate us to be growing spiritually. So we have three benefits here of a robust spiritual life. And these three are, you can see in your outline this morning, fruitful service, full assurance, and future rewards. Growing in grace produces a spiritual harvest a fruitful service, full assurance, and future rewards. Now, we start in verse 8. Notice, if these qualities are yours and increasing. Now, when he says, if these qualities are yours, you say, well, what qualities? What's well, all the qualities he mentioned in verses 5 through 7? Remember, he says there, we've already got faith, we're a believer, and then we add to our faith moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. So he says, if these qualities or these things are yours and they're increasing in your life, then he's going to go on and tell us what will happen. Now, if you like to underline in your Bible, you might notice in verse 8, he says, if these qualities are yours. Again, it's the things in verses 5 through 7. Notice in verse 9, he says, for he who lacks these qualities. Notice now near the end of verse 10, as long as you practice these things. 
Testaments. Again, the things in verses 5 through 7. Notice down in verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. And then down at the very end of verse 15, he says, Surely after my departure that you'll be able to call these things to mind. So he's pointing back to this chain of virtues in verses 5 to 7 over and over again. And he's saying, if these things are in your life, if they're existing in your life, and they're expanding. In other words, if you have these things and they're abounding in your life, then you are going to be fruitful to God in your service. One one writer says it like this, these things, the things in verses 5 to 7, can belong to you. They can abound in you. You can take possession of them, and they can take possession of you in your life. These virtues that we see here in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Now he says, if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, if you're growing spiritually in this way, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word useless there means idle or slothful, or it literally can mean out of work. And the word unfruitful means unproductive or barren. Now, Peter puts it in the negative, but we can restate it in the positive. What he's saying here is the more and the more you grow, the more productive and the more useful you become to God. Your knowledge of Jesus will be fruitful and effective, increasingly effective and productive. So spiritual growth is the father of spiritual productivity in life. And let me say this, God wants us to be growing throughout our lives. You're never too old to be growing spiritually. I hope we all know that. Psalm 92 verse 14 says, they will still bear fruit in old age. They'll stay fresh and green. That's the way we want to be as we grow and we mature in this life. We want to be growing and maturing spiritually. We want to be useful and productive all the days of our life. There's a story years ago from a man named Bishop Taylor, and he was invited to a dinner at a wealthy family's home, and that was a great dinner, and um, for for dessert, he was given an apple, a a nice, very uh, fresh apple to to peel and and to eat for dessert. Uh, But the knife that they gave him was really dull, so it was kind of a nice dinner, but he just picked the apple up and just started eating the apple. And the person next to him asked him why he wasn't peeling the apple with the knife, With a twinkle in his eye, he says, this knife is like a lot of Christians, stainless but useless. And sadly, that's true. But you and I don't want to be useless Christians. And he's saying, if you want to be used by God, if you want to be fruitful, you've got to be growing spiritually. God can't use you if you're not a growing Christian. Then he goes on in verse 9 and says it in the negative. For he who lacks these qualities, so if you lack these things, you're not growing spiritually. You're going to be blind or short-sighted, having forgotten your purification from your former sins. So now he's going to kind of tell us what happens if we don't grow. And he says, if you don't grow, you're going to be spiritually nearsighted, and you're going to get a bad case of gospel amnesia is what's going to happen to you. Notice he says, if you lack these qualities, you're blind or short-sighted. Now, when we read that, you're short-sighted or nearsighted, we, we would think it'd be the other way. You got, you'd be nearsighted or blind. It would go from the lesser to the greater. Um, also, you read this here, and it says you're blind or short-sighted or nearsighted. How can you be blind and nearsighted? 
Um, the, the word here, nearsighted, kind of qualifies the word blindness. So I think you could translate it like this. They are blind being nearsighted. Or they're so nearsighted that they can't see. Now, I can relate to that because uh, when I was in sixth grade, my eyes just started getting going from bad to worse really quickly. I mean, it was literally like every day in class, I had to move up another row so that I could see. So I finally went home and told my parents, you know, it's like, man, I don't think I can see very well. You know, I think maybe I need to go to the eye doctor. So I go in the eye doctor, and I never forget, you know, they have to sit back at a certain distance and, you know, put something over your one eye, and they say, uh, read uh, the letter, you know, uh, letters there on, on the chart there. And I'm like, what letters? You know, I couldn't even see the chart. They say, well, there's a real big E there. I mean, can you see the E? No, I, I, can't, I can't even see that there's a chart. So I realized at that time, man, my eyesight had gone terrible. The other eye wasn't quite as bad. But, I mean, I was so nearsighted, as it says here, almost to be blind. Now, also, some take this, though, that the word short-sighted there, nearsighted, can carry the idea in the Greek of to shut your eyes, to, to do it voluntarily, or, or to squint. And so some take this, that they're blind, that is, having shut your eyes. And the idea is this is a self-imposed nearsightedness. That when you fail to grow, it's like someone who's blind, but they're not blind naturally. It's blind because they've chosen to be blind. In other words, they've, they've shut their eyes or they've closed their eyes. But either way you take this, the meaning is clear. If you're not growing spiritually, it dims your vision. You, you can't see far off. Um, you lose sight of, of the big picture in life, and you only see what's right in front of you. And you think about this in your own life, in times where you've been uh, spiritually dry and in and, and, and a desert and not growing, you just get focused more on immediate personal satisfaction. And you, you lose a clear-sighted vision of, of where things are headed and where life is headed. Distant things aren't in focus. We become what we might call short-sighted saints when we're not growing spiritually. Speaking of, uh, of going to the optometrist or the eye doctor, most of us here, probably a lot of us, have been fitted for glasses. And I remember the last time that I went to the optometrist. It happens every time you sit in a chair in a darkened room. They pull up a big device that looks like a complicated set of interlocking binoculars. And you put your chin on the little uh, pad that's there. And uh, they begin to turn this wheel and they ask you about a million times, is this better or is this worse? Is this better or is this worse? And through that process, they come then to find out the prescription that you need. Here's the, here's the way David Jeremiah puts this. He says, the eight qualities Peter lists are like those lenses at the optometrist's office. Click by click, the great optometrist clarifies your vision as you mature and these prescribed qualities. Bit by bit, you're able to better read the handwriting of his will. You're able to trace the letters of his grace. You're able to discern the times and know how to act. You're able to interpret the details and see things in their context, in the context of his word and of his providence. So he's saying, look, if you want to be useful to God, you need to be growing. And if you're not growing, one of the results is you're going to lose your spiritual vision. And then the second result of failing to grow here is he says, you're going to get spiritual amnesia. He says, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. In other words, we begin to forget the work of Christ for us. We forget that we've been saved and delivered from that old way of life. 
You know, David understood the tendency in all of us to, to forget what God's done for us. In Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits. But when we're not growing spiritually, the things of the, of the cross can grow distant to us. Now, it's not here that you lose your forgiveness if you're a believer, but it's the experience and the memory of it becomes clouded. Again, as I think I mentioned a moment ago, some people, one person called this gospel amnesia. What a terrible thing for a Christian to have, gospel amnesia, where we begin to forget the cross, if you will, and Calvary becomes kind of dim and distant to us. One person put this all together and said, someone who is short-sighted can't see what lies ahead in the distance, and someone who's forgotten can't remember what lies behind them. Now, that's a bad place to be in as a Christian where you're forgetting what Christ has done for you and you can't see ahead. It's a, it's a tragic picture of what we might call a stagnant saint who's not moving forward in their spiritual life. So really the injunction here in this passage for all of us, you and I need to make spiritual growth and progress the consuming passion of our lives. The consuming passion of, of every person here should be making progress and growing spiritually in our lives to become more like Jesus Christ. Nothing else uh, should be higher than that because God can't use you if you don't take your spiritual growth seriously. Oh, you and I want to be in working order. We want to be serviceable and useful to Christ. But to do that, we have to be growing. Back in uh, 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul wrote this to Timothy. He says, we want to be vessels of honor, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. There's an old chorus written ago by, years ago by Audrey Meyer. She wrote this, to be used of God, to sing, to speak, to pray, to be used of God, to show someone the way. Oh, how I long to feel the touch of his consuming fire. To be used of God is my desire. And that ought to be the burning desire of every one of us here today, to be used of God, whatever, wherever, however, to be used by God and to be useful to God. And you and I, to do that, have to be growing. You, we want to be handy for God to take us up and use us. But for Him to use us, we have to be usable. And that will only happen if you and I are growing spiritually in our lives. Now, the second benefit of a robust spiritual life is full assurance. Assurance of our salvation. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. But we're talking here about the assurance of our salvation. Um, I heard this story once about a, a polar bear and her young cub that lived in the frigid extremes of Alaska. And one morning, the cub came up to the mother and said, Mom, are you sure I'm a polar bear? And the mother said, well, of course you're a polar bear. And so the, the cub went away reassured. The next morning, the cub came again and asked the mother, she said, are you sure that I'm a polar bear? And the mother seemed, conf seemed confused and said, I promise you're a polar bear. Why do you keep asking me? And the little polar bear said, because I'm freezing out here. <laughs> There's a lot of Christians who can identify with that little bear. Uh, they go around a lot of time in their lives wondering if they're really a Christian. And they need to be reassured of their salvation. And look, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved, but it's even better to be saved and to know that you're saved. And you and I, according to Scripture, can know that we are saved. It's not some presumption. 
Um, It's based on on the truth and the promises of God's Word. Now, he says here in verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Now, that's the same Greek word we saw back in verse 5 where he says, applying all diligence. And he's going to use the same word again down in verse 15, I will also be diligent at any time after my departure. So what he's saying here is, To gain assurance of our salvation takes deliberate, concentrated effort. Be all the more diligent to make certain. And that word means to be sure, to ratify something. Be all the more diligent. Take concentrated effort to ratify and know for sure uh, that you're saved. Now you say, well, how is it possible to make our election and our calling sure? One translation puts it like this, put God's call and selection of you beyond all doubt. Put it it beyond all doubt that God has called and he's chosen you. You say, well, how do we do that? Now, you and I don't make God more sure that he's called and chosen us, right? God knows that he's done that. So we're not making God more sure of this, but we're making ourselves sure. It's giving us assurance, And he says what you need to make sure is about God's calling you and God's choosing you. Now, we would normally think of these words as the other way around because really the choosing comes before the calling, but God puts it in this way, I think putting what he's done most recently for us and calling us and then choosing us in the past. Now, these words election and calling or choosing and calling lead us into some deep theological waters. Now, this is talking about what we might call the divine side of our salvation. Um, The word election, the idea of God electing us or choosing us, election is something that occurred in the ages past. Uh, We might call it pre-temporal. It's before time. Before time, God chose people uh, to be saved. You go back to uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 2. Peter introduces his first letter this way. Very end of verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, to those who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Uh, back in chapter uh, 1 and verse 1 of 2 Peter, he says that we've received faith as a gift. So election is simply God's sovereign choosing of people for his glory. It's God's sovereign choice of us in Christ before time. That's what his choosing or election is. It's God's sovereign choosing of people before time. Now, his calling of us is something that happens within time. So those that God has chosen in time, he calls them. And so the calling is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to the knowledge um, of Jesus Christ. So these two words, choosing and calling, obviously highlight the grace of God. They highlight the fact that God is the one who saves us. But but it's important for us to always remember that divine sovereignty doesn't negate human responsibility. Uh, Both of these are true. There's mystery to this. And if you ask me to explain it this morning, I won't be able to do that. But the Bible teaches both. In fact, one man puts it like this. He says, so you came to God because he wanted you to and enabled you to. And at the same time, you can truly say, I came to God because I wanted to. I sought him, and I finally heard about Jesus, and I accepted him. Both of those are true. God chose us before time. He calls us in time. 
But it's also true that we are responsible and we want to come to Jesus Christ as God works in our life. Let me just show you this in a couple passages back in John 6. This might be something you want to look at later on your own. But in John chapter 6 and verse 37, this is a beautiful verse. Jesus said, all the Father gives to me, come to me. That's divine sovereignty. But then what's the second part of the verse say? And the one who comes to me, I'll never ever cast him out. All the Father gives to me, come to me. That's divine sovereignty. Whoever comes to me, human responsibility, I'll never cast him out. Verse 40, that same chapter. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. It's human responsibility. Look down in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. That's divine sovereignty. You just see it like this. And one of the things you'll find that the Bible authors, they just state these truths, but they never seek to go and somehow explain it or solve the mystery. But they're stated side by side. So he's saying here that you and I need to be diligent, give concentrated effort to make certain to verify that God has called us and God has chosen us. Now his point here is not that you can work your way to heaven. Manifesting these virtues in verses 5 to 7 don't produce our election, but they prove it. In other words, adding these Christ-like virtues doesn't cause our election, but it confirms that we have been elected. It verifies it. One writer puts it like this. He says, God doesn't ask us to earn our salvation, but he does require that we demonstrate that we have it. And that's what's being talked about here. Now, a little bit of the context here, why Peter is saying this We're going to go on in chapter 2 in a few weeks and look at the false teachers that were infiltrating the church there. And apparently these false teachers who'd infiltrated the church were boasting about their election and their calling. But they they used that truth as a license then to go live how they wanted to live. In other words, you know, I'm elect, God's chosen me, and so I can kind of go now and live however I want to live. And Peter is writing this to refute that kind of teaching. And I've met people like that today as well. They'll say, yeah, I'm elect, I'm chosen of God, and they just kind of go live how they want to live. And the problem is they're giving no evidence or verification that there's someone that God has actually called and chosen. Our faith is, concern, is confirmed by our faithfulness, by how we live. It's the acid test that we are really a believer in Christ. So growing in Christ provides reassurance that you're saved. And a true believer who isn't bearing fruit and isn't growing will constantly wrestle with wondering whether they're really saved or not. Now, back when I was in my early 20s, um, I struggled for about six or nine months just horrendously with lack of assurance of my salvation. Um, I wanted to know that I was a believer more than anything in the world, and for some reason, it eluded me. And it it was a a terrible, miserable time of despair in my life. I can't describe it. Um, But... As I looked back on it later, I didn't know what was going on, but I looked back on it later. You know, I was in college. I didn't really live for the Lord, and I wasn't growing spiritually. And I think it's an evidence of this passage. If you're not making, uh, if you're not adding these things to your life, if you're not growing spiritually, one of the results of that can be a loss of assurance of your salvation. And God was gracious and came and and restored me, and, and, and I've never struggled with that since that time. But if you're struggling with a lack of assurance today, um, maybe it's produced by this in your life of a a lack of being diligent to be growing spiritually in your life. 
Now, there's an important distinction to make here. You can lose the assurance of your salvation, but you never lose your security of your salvation. The security of our salvation is an objective fact. If you're a believer, you're secure. But our assurance is our subjective enjoyment of that security. So our assurance can kind of wax and wane, kind of go up and down, but our security never, ever changes. So if you're a believer, you're always secure. But you may be a believer and your assurance may sometimes go, go up and down. Assurance can sometimes be lost. It's kind of like uh, the story, I love the story, it's an interesting story about Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan on their, their journey around the world. Most of you know their plane crashed on July 2nd of 1937. And the very last uh, communication to a nearby naval vessel that was sent by Amelia Earhart was just two simple words, position doubtful. They didn't know where they were. Their position was doubtful. And that's tragically the way a lot of Christians live their lives. Their position's doubtful. They're constantly struggling with and wondering if they, they really have a relationship with God. God doesn't want us to stay in that condition. And our own spiritual growth and transformation will give evidence to ourselves that God has granted us eternal life and called us to himself. You know, when you think about assurance of salvation, there's really four kinds of people. There are people who aren't saved and they know they're not saved, right? There's people who aren't saved who think they're saved. There's people who are saved and doubt whether they're saved. And there's people who saved and know they're saved. And that's what the people we want to be. We want to be people who are saved and who know we're saved. That's God's will for us. Let me just mention this quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time, but let me just give four sources of assurance because this isn't the only source of the assurance of our salvation. One of the great sources is God's word to us. God says, if you believe in my son, I'll give you eternal life. We have God's word that gives us assurance. We have Christ's work for us. He died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. The, Christ, the work of Christ is finished and we can rest in that. We also have the Spirit's work within us. Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're a child of God. So we get assurance from the Word of God, from the work of Christ for us, from the work of spirit, the Spirit in us, but we also get assurance from our work for God. What we do for God and as we grow spiritually is assurance of our salvation. A transformed life is part of the assurance that we know the Lord. It's evidence of our uh, election. And then notice he says at the end of verse 10, as long as you practice these things, as long as these qualities in verses 5 to 7 are being uh, implemented and growing in your life, you will never stumble. Now that doesn't mean you'll never sin, but it means you'll never stumble into lack of assurance and doubt. And in the Greek there, it's a double negative. So you could translate it like this. As long as you practice these things, as long as you're growing and increasing in these Christian virtues, you will never, ever at any time stumble. You won't stumble into to doubt and lack of assurance of your salvation. Now, the final benefit here of a growing uh, spiritual life in verse 11 is future reward. Now, I did a whole series last fall on heavenly rewards, so if you weren't here for that and want to know a lot more about rewards, you can go listen to that series. But here in verse 11, Peter isn't suggesting that we get to heaven by building character into our lives. You and I can never, ever work our way to heaven by our own merits. I hope everybody here knows that. 
You're never going to get to heaven on your own merits. We get to heaven solely by the merit of Jesus Christ and by faith and trust in Him. So I hope you've trusted in Him and believed in Him. You and I get to heaven by believing in Christ. But how we enter into heaven and how we spend eternity is based on how we live now. So the focus in verse 11 is not where you're going to spend eternity, but how you'll spend it. Notice he says, in this way, in other words, by growing spiritually, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied to you. You could put it like this, believers in Christ are secure forever, whether they add Christian character qualities to their faith or not. What is at stake here is not kingdom entrance, but abundant kingdom entrance. You could translate it a glorious entrance, um, a, a, a lavish entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you'll hear people say sometime, well, look, I don't care what kind of entrance I have into heaven. I don't care if I go crawling in there on my hands and knees. You know, it's going to be fine to me. I'm just going to be glad to be there. Now, that can sound really pious to say something like that. And certainly, it's going to be infinitely better to be in heaven than to be in hell. But that kind of an attitude is unbiblical. And you say, well, why should we want a glorious entrance? Is it to get glory for ourselves? The fact that we get a glorious entrance means that we pleased Christ. And the goal of our life is to be pleasing to Him. And so a glorious entrance for us will mean we pleased Him with our life. And that's the goal of our life. So we want the glorious entrance because it's evidence that we lived a life that was pleasing to Him. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, heaven isn't just a destination, it's a motivation. And he says, for some people, when they leave this world, if they've grown spiritually and these, these virtues in verses 5 to 7 are, are growing and increasing in their life, they're going to have a lavish, glorious entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the picture here is of a, a victorious Olympic champion. Back in that day, different towns would send uh, people to go and compete in the Olympic Games. And uh, if someone from your town won uh, the highest medal there, when they came back home, uh, these towns, these small towns were just filled with joy and pride that one of their members had won this great award. And so when the person would come back to town, into the city, they didn't come through the normal gate, the main gate of the city. They would actually go and break down part of the wall of the city to make a special entrance just for that person to come through. Now, that's a glorious entrance, isn't it? That took a lot of work. They tear down part of the wall for this person to come through. And that's the kind of entrance that you and I should want to receive uh, someday when we get to heaven. You know, there's three things about this kingdom that are mentioned here. It's an eternal kingdom, it's a future kingdom, and it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His kingdom. And someday you and I will enter that kingdom. And the question is, how are we going to enter? This passage is beautiful here for a lot of reasons, but it comes full circle. The word abundantly supplied is the same word back in verse 5 of supplying. And so if you remember back in chapter uh, 1 and verse 5, we said that as believers, we have faith in Christ, and then you and I are to come and supply to that or add to that moral excellence, and then the moral excellence knowledge. And we said that word supplied there is a word that means to, to lavishly supply something. And so 
If you put this together, what the Lord is saying is, I'm calling on you to lavishly supply these virtues in your life and to be growing spiritually. And if you'll lavishly supply these virtues in your life, someday when you get to heaven, I'm going to supply you with a lavish entrance. It's the same word uh, that's used here in this context. Uh, Michael Green, in his commentary on uh, on 2 Peter puts it like this, if we generously put ourselves out in obedience to God and give what we have, he will generously put himself out for us and lavishly equip us for life everlasting. It's saying, look, God is going to reciprocate. If you lavishly supply these virtues in your life, God is going to lavishly supply you with an entrance into his kingdom. And let me just say this, he's a lot more lavish than we are in that entrance he'll give. Did you know not everybody's going to have an abundant entrance into the kingdom? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about those who are going to enter and they're going to come in so as through fire. Well, J. Vernon McGee used to say some people smell like they were bought at a fire sale, you know, when they come into the, the kingdom, you know, as the, the, the works are, are burned up there. There's going to be degrees of glory and different measures and capacity in heaven depending on how we live now. One of the most uh, chilling or one of the most thrilling scenes to me in the Bible is Stephen when he's being stoned to death. Stephen's being stoned there. You remember what it says? He, he says, Father, forgive them. But he looks up into heaven and Stephen and says, he says he looked into heaven and saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I mean, when they heard that, they just went crazy. But Jesus is always pictured as seated at the right hand of God. And Stephen looks up as he's getting ready to go into heaven, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus stood up to welcome Stephen into heaven. Now, that's the best kind of entrance a person could ever imagine. But it's, it's good to ask ourselves the question, how am I going to arrive in heaven? What kind of welcome am I going to receive there based on the life that I'm living now? You know, this whole section here of verses 1 to 11 is just a towering panorama of the Christian life. It's a sweeping summary. Verses 1 to 4 is our justification. Verses 5 through 10 is the Christian life or our sanctification. And verse 11 is our glorification when we enter into the kingdom. Our salvation originates from heaven. It seeks heaven and ultimately it leads to heaven. Now, we're going to pick up in verses 12 to 15 next time, but I want to just mention one thing. As we get into these verses next time, Peter knows that his own life is about to end. This is Peter's swan song. He says, the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. So Peter's about to leave this earth. The heavenly kingdom's on his mind because he's getting ready to be there shortly. And he wants an abundant entrance for himself. But he also wants those who read this letter to have an abundant welcome. And so he says in verses 12 to 15 over and over again, as long as I'm here in this life, I want to keep reminding you of these things. I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. That these things is to be growing spiritually. Have these virtues in your life. Because Peter wants himself and he wants his readers to have a lavish entrance into the coming kingdom. One final thought here. There's a story about a man who got shipwrecked on an abandoned, unknown island. And uh, finally realized that he wasn't alone there. There was a large tribe of people who shared this island with him. And um, they treated this man very well, this surprise. In fact, they, they put him on a, a throne and they catered to every desire he had. And he thought this was great until he began to learn the language a little bit better. And he found out that they would elect somebody king for a year. And at the end of that year, they were exiled to an island all by themselves. And then his delight turned to distress. 
But he came up with a shrewd plan. Over the next months, he sent members of the tribe ahead to that other island to clear the island and to build a house for him and to plant crops. And he even sent some of his best friends there so that they would be there waiting for him uh, when he arrived. He carefully prepared for this move he was going to be making uh, to this island. Everything was ready, and everyone was there to welcome him to a place carefully prepared. And I ask, I ask myself the question, I ask you this morning, are you planning for the move? Are you living now with the future in mind? Are you preparing for your entrance someday into that glorious kingdom? How you and I live now determines our entrance and our existence in heaven. We need to be growing. And if you and I are growing spiritually, we're going to have fruitful service. We're going to have full assurance in this life. And we're going to have future rewards in the life to come. Let's pray together. Father, we come now humbly before you and we thank you for calling and choosing us, for the work that you've done in our lives to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that getting to heaven doesn't depend on what we do. It's not dependent upon our merit, but solely upon the merit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus, they might do it now. And Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning that we can be useful to you. We'll be productive. We'll be those that you can take up and find handy to use. Father, give us full assurance today. Father, help us to live today in light of that day, to live with an eye on eternity, to seek that abundant entrance so that you can be pleased and you can be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.